I think people that are out over their skis, you know, trying to take advantage of this uber hot market and to flip properties and are illiquid and have a lot of inventory when this thing turns and it will, uh, you get caught flat footed and then everybody's a seller, nobody's a buyer and all that precious equity that you scatter to the winds disappears. I know because it happened to me. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals podcast. We got a big one for you today. Today, we have Russell Gray from The Real Estate Guys joining us to discuss the future, the future of the economy, where money is headed, where real estate is headed, and how to prepare for that future. Today, we discuss some of the realities of how the economy works, how money works, and how financial system works, how all three of those things will impact where, at least Russell thinks, the economy, real estate investments, everything, where that is all headed. And I think almost more importantly, he's gonna tell us about the way to think about these things and the things to look for when we're making our own decisions about where to position ourselves, what to invest in, what to focus on, Lots of great information on this one. If you're a real estate investor or you're looking to invest in real estate, you got to be listening to the Real Estate Guys radio program. It's a podcast. They have a YouTube channel. They put out a ton of great content and they do a number of events. I've been to quite a few of them in person. And then now during the coronavirus crisis, they're doing them online as well and having a fantastic attendance. So I would highly recommend that as well. Very excited for this one. As you know, this is a show where we combine the fire movement and real estate, bringing you the best experts from the financial independence retire early movement and the best, most experienced real estate investors out there to help you get your investments into the most proven asset class in history, which is real estate. And today you're going to learn why real estate isn't even an asset class. That's a big one that really hit me. I'm taking that one moving forward. That's a great lesson. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. As you know, I love talking about these topics. I've gotten so much fantastic information from Russ over the years, and today is a great example of that. You're going to learn a lot today, too. Without any further ado, here we go. Russ, thank you for joining us today. I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you again. We've not talked online, but we've talked in person. For those out there who somehow don't know who you are and what you do, can you give us a little introduction? Tell us about what you do. Well, I mean, you know, I, I do a lot of different things, uh, but I think <laughs> my claim to fame, if I have one, is that I'm the co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show, and I've been doing that since uh, 2004 started a mortgage company a few years before that in 2000. And when I decided to market it to investors and I wanted to do it leading with education, I went on a hunt to find people that were in the space, to learn from them, to see what worked and what didn't work. And I found myself on a Robert Helms seminar uh, called Jumpstart Your Real Estate Business that I had heard advertised on the Real Estate Guys radio show when there was a different co-host. And so that's kind of how I got started. And I just, you know, I saw a big opportunity in real estate investing. I wanted to master the art of debt. I recognized that, you know, wealth building through real estate is done through debt. So it's not getting out of debt that makes you money if you know how to use it. It's actually getting into debt properly uh, in an environment where they're devaluing 
the dollar perpetually and a whole lot of that going on right now. And, but that's been going on for a long, long time. And, you know, when you understand basic concepts about arbitrage and things like that, real estate becomes a very, very powerful tool. So uh, that's kind of how I got started. And then along the way, once Robert and I got going together uh, on the radio, we'd already been doing seminars together for a couple of years. So we kind of had a little bit of mojo. Uh, we got along well uh, on and off the air. And, you know, that turned into a book. We wrote Equity Happens in the end of 2005, we released it. And then we, you know, kind of got a TV show after that and became the most popular television show on this little network and spent the one summer on Dish Network in 10 million homes. So that was a great experience. I had zero background in radio or TV. And then we got into 2008 and shazam, you know, uh, all the glitter rubbed off and, you know, all the smarts that we thought we had crumbled into dust. And we found out that we were really not that bright at all. And then our entire business model changed as we decided that the cycle of life and the cycle of business was what happened in 2008 was probably going to happen again. This time we needed to be ready. So that's what the last decade's been about. It's preparing for where we are right now. Wow. That's incredible. You have a great story and, and just so much experience in this space. And you mentioned a few things about where we're moving forward and the devaluation of the dollar over time. And it looks like that is going to continue to happen. And today I wanted to discuss with you preparing for the next market cycle. And, you know, we should always be preparing for what's coming, but, you know, especially in light of the coronavirus, we're in major unemployment times and, you know, things are going to be different in the next market cycle. So what do you think people are doing wrong right now in terms of their real estate investments, looking at, you know, our current trajectory? Yeah, well, I don't know that, you know, you can say people are doing anything right or wrong because mm. each individual is doing it right or wrong. You know, um, I did a lot of things wrong in preparing my portfolio going into 2005 because I was in six because I was really all organized for sunshine. I was not organized for rain. Kenny McElroy, same environment, was organized to be able to weather the storm and came out of it and, and, and ended up doing very, very well when I was doing very, very poorly. And so I looked at that because I knew Kenny back then. I didn't know him well. We became friends later. But I realized, you know what? It's not the market. It's me. It's me. How I'm approaching this, how I'm thinking, the decisions I'm making. So each individual investor is different. But you know, if you talk about what I think mistakes would be right now, I think pulling equity out of properties and going in and buying properties at the top of the market, highly leveraged with adjustable rate loans, uh, betting on your ability to raise the rents, I think that's a dangerous way to play. I think people that are out over their skis, you know, trying to take advantage of this uber hot market and to flip properties and are illiquid and have a lot of inventory when this thing turns and it will, uh, you get f caught flat footed and then everybody's a seller, nobody's a buyer and all that precious equity that you scatter to the winds disappears. I know because it happened to me. So I think that the biggest mistake that people make is they either play all defense or they play all offense. And, you know, I played a little bit of football when I was a younger guy. I wasn't very good, but I liked it. And one of the things I learned was that, um, you know, they would say, you know, defense wins championships. If they don't score, you can't lose. The flip side is if you don't score, you can't win. Right. Yeah. So you have to play both. And I think most people who get into real estate are mavericks. 
most people who are hands-on investors are kind of A students turn to do-it-yourselfers. They like to figure things out. They like to understand. And they're a little prideful when it comes to trouble and they're afraid to ask for help. And that's a big mistake. First mistake is relying upon your own ability to find the answer instead of just hiring somebody more experienced than you who already knows the answer. And the second thing is waiting to ask for help when you are absolutely stuck and don't know what to do and you just hope the answer will appear or you hope the problem will go away. I'm here to tell you, hope is not a strategy and it's a terrible tactic. You just have to reach out and get the help you need. And, and hopefully you've built those relationships ahead of time so that when that time comes, you're not like, looking around trying to find who you should have on speed dial they're already there so those are the things you know i mean i could go on and on there's a big laundry list but i think the main thing is just make sure that you're sober-minded and you're you're not just seeing sunshine because there's certain good things going on and you're not just seeing doom and gloom because both are present at the same time and you have to prepare for both and take advantage of both at the same time wow so one of the things that really strikes me about our current situation is, at least when we talk today, the there's still unprecedented unemployment. We're still locked down to some degree from the coronavirus. And yet the S&P 500 within the last couple of days has once again reached all-time highs or something very it's close. It's fake. I mean, you know, <laughs> exactly. everybody knows it. It's fake. Right. And that there's this, like a separation there between the reality that you know, the day-to-day -day life, the average person and Wall Street. And I kind of, I wanted to get, like talk with you about that is that separation why the financial system seems to be doing really well, but Main Street is boarded up, you know, all the restaurants are gone and things along those lines. I mean. Yeah. What you're talking about is the difference between the economy and the financial system. And there's a difference. And so this is where people get confused. So the way I explain it to people, which I think is fairly simple, uh, hopefully it'll make sense to everybody. But if you're, you know, you're on the highway, if you're on the road to riches in your fancy car and you look down at your speedometer and you can see that you're moving along at, you know, 75 miles an hour, good clip. And you look at your odometer and you can see the miles ticking by based on those two gauges and only those two gauges, you're doing great. You're on your way. However, if you're a more sophisticated driver, you understand the mechanics of the machinery a little bit better. You might look at your engine temperature gauge. You might look at your oil gauge. You might look at your air pressure in your tires. You might realize that your system, which is moving down the highway at a nice clip according to the two gauges you're looking at, but the system itself that you're counting on to get you there is fragile, failing, maybe even broken. And so the financial system is broken. It's a failed model. And I could go into detail on that, but it, it's an unsustainable model and perpetual growth of debt requires increasing ability to debt service. And when you've dropped your interest rate to zero, the only way is to grow your way out. And when your return on additional debt goes negative, you're in the black hole, you're, you're in the event horizon, you're sucked down. And we're right at that edge. And so... Main Street understands it because Main Street is where the where the paycheck comes from. Wall Street doesn't produce anything. Everything that Wall Street is, Main Street gave it. And then they scoff what they scoop off and then they send back the scraps. And you and I both know a Main Street investor investing in Main Street project can get better returns with less, more transparency. But, you know, the thing is the machinery, the distribution model isn't that way. 
it, it, it's like, and I'm going to go after a couple of brands. It's a joke that Robert tells all the time that I think is funny. He goes, but why do people eat McDonald's, you know, Big Macs and uh, drink Budweiser? Is it because Big Macs are the best hamburger on earth? Mm -hmm. Well, no. Is it because Budweiser is the best beer? No. It's because that's what's sold to them. It's what's convenient. It's what's available. You know, Wall Street, I mean, you, you're probably old enough to remember the old E-Trade ads, right? They put the little baby in the diaper and they yeah. give it its E-Trade app. And, and who, I mean, think about the avatar. Think about who they're, as a marketer, who are they talking to? They're talking to somebody that's so lazy, so lazy. They want to have the IQ, intelligence, and investing acumen of a toddler. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> and that's who they're marketing that. to. Right now, that may appeal to somebody who is lazy and doesn't want to learn. And there are people out there, you know, Kiyosaki goes after all the time, aren't for people who don't want education. Now, of course, I'm preaching to the choir. Anybody listening to this podcast probably is not in that camp. But we want to reach out to those people who used to be in that camp, <laughs> right? The people who are like, okay, I mean, I'm not the smartest or most experienced person, but I can tell this, this makes zero sense. I can see 40 million people unemployed in the stock market at an all-time high. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon to understand that there's something terribly wrong. And so when you go on the hunt and you end up in a, a show like this and you're like, what's going on? What's going on is, is they're trying to get you to stare at a gauge that gives you a false impression of the strength of the system when indeed the gauges that tell you what's going on, tell you the system is broken. Zero interest rates is like flatlining because that's the value of money. And I could go on and on. It's like an economics lesson. You're not gonna get it all in one show, but I encourage anybody listening who started that, keep studying, keep asking questions and don't pay attention to the financial media, the mainstream financial media, the talking heads on TV because they're there to promote and protect Wall Street. That's what they do. That's where their money comes from. That's who advertises. That's who supports them. That's who they work for. They don't work for you and they don't understand you. A hundred percent. We saw it when Bitcoin had its huge run up. They were really pumping Bitcoin to cryptos, all those things. This is the next wave. And then it crashes in and crickets. You don't hear about Bitcoin and the, and the cryptos anymore because it's not the sexy thing. They're not, they're not really able to sell uh, a falling non-asset, but you know, I guess, I guess this just leads me to question: What's the trajectory of real estate moving forward? What's going to be the asset class or asset classes to focus on over the next few years? If if money is not worthless necessarily, but is not growing and is constantly losing value due to inflation, okay, we probably want to stay, not have all our assets and money, but what do we want to think about investing in? Is it real estate or is it something else? I don't know. Yeah. So that's a great question. And everybody needs to be thinking about that. And uh, of course, real estate is not an asset class. That's another debate that I've had on a couple of occasions and with some pretty smart people. And I'm proud to say I won and I didn't win because I'm brilliant. I won because I was right. And I was right because the asset, it's not an asset class. I mean, you know that an apartment building is not a medical office building and a medical office building is not a mall and that's not a farm you know, and that's not an oil well. And I mean, this is, that's all real estate. Mm -hmm. So in, in, of course, you know, Washington DC is not Omaha, Nebraska. 
they're very different. So there's so many dynamics that go into real estate. Real estate is unique right down to the property, right? The financing structure, the condition of the property, the motivation of the seller, and it is inherently inefficient. And because of that, anybody that's connected and knows what they're doing can, you know, rummage around in the marketplace and find deals in any marketplace because of the inefficiencies. But you just have to know how to recognize a deal when you see one. People who try to treat these things as an asset class and deal with them at the intellectual level and not at the street level, they get in trouble. So I like to look at the, at the high level to figure out where I should be paying attention to kind of what the macro trends are. But, you know, like on our YouTube channel, we do a thing called boots on the ground. So on the one hand, we look at the news and we look at the data and we look at the macro and the metros and all that. And then we talk to people who make their living in the street, talking to tenants on a daily basis, collecting rent, you know, buying and selling and listing properties and dealing with all the real world stuff that people deal with in the real world. And we compare and contrast what we see at the macro and what they're experiencing at the micro. And then we try and put that together and glean something. But I think at the macro level, I think the one thing to be sure of, and we're already beginning to see it, is that when people and businesses are being squeezed for profits and income, in order to maintain a standard of living, they're going to move, they're going to change their circumstances. So they will move in a marketplace where they have roots and connections from bigger properties to more affordable properties. They will move from uh, more expensive areas to less expensive areas. And eventually, if they feel like they have to, they will leave the entire region and go to another region where they can find lower taxes, better business climate, better standard of living uh, for the same dollar. And of course, a big thing that just opened up with all these people you know, sheltering in place, if you will, is corporate America has figured out, hey, you know what? We didn't think we could do it, but we, we actually can build a business without all these office buildings and people that used to live in New York and Chicago and Boston can now live in central Florida and we can pay them less and they can take home more pay. They're happy, we're happy. Why wouldn't you do that? And then there's other people that have been in, you know, tightly populated, very condensed uh, metros that are just all over each other in a COVID-19 world that are like, I don't want to live here. I don't want to raise my family here. I need to get out to the country. I need to get out to the suburbs. And so you're seeing some of that. So the point is, is you have to look at those macro trends for clues about the motivation of demographics and, and figure out what people are doing and why, where they're going. And then you need to get into those markets and develop relationships with people, boots on the ground, so they can get into the nooks and crannies, right? I mean, we love Memphis as a market. I can tell the story of Memphis very well. It's affordable, great rentals, uh, working class. The big driver is FedEx, which is a distribution hub with billions of dollars of infrastructure. It would take an act of God to move it. And how do you put in another strategic location? I mean, you know, they couldn't move to Alaska because it was cheaper because it's not a good place to distribute from, right? So even though it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, a mono market in, in one regard, at the other hand, it's got a big driver and it's a very stable driver. Okay. But you know what? That doesn't mean every neighborhood in Memphis is a good market, right? And so we have our boots on the ground team that can tell you, you know, you can be here and you can be literally 200 yards away and you're in the war zone. This is a great area, 200 yards away. It's a war zone. And, you know, you're a street level investor. You know, that's how it works. But if you're not dealing with anybody who knows that, if you're trying to shop properties on the internet and you don't have a relationship with somebody that cares about you past that transaction, you're, you're treading on thin ice. 
Right. So I think that, you know, the, the opportunity is to just pay attention to the demographics who are doing well and what they want, the factors that are driving people to move around and where they're going and why, and then ultimately corroborating your macro view with some boots on the ground view. Uh, and then sticking your toe in the water and kind of building some relationships and trying to figure out how to get in the game. Wow. And that's, a, I want to go back to the point that you made about real estate not being a, a, a monolithic asset class. And that's a fantastic point. And, and I think you uh, defined it and, and clarified it very well that it's these things are not just one blob of real estate. They're all different. They have office in certain areas and multifamily in other areas. And they're completely different businesses. They're different buildings. They're different markets. So why would we lump them all together into, quote, real estate when they're not the same thing and they're not driven by the same market forces? And one of the things that we've heard about a lot lately, at least what I've been, the media that I've been paying attention to is both inflation and deflation. If you listen to the Peter Schiffs out there, who I think I heard uh, you or Robert say one time has predicted 18 out of the last two recessions or something like that. And I love that, but I I do like Peter. If you listen to him, we are headed for a steep inflationary curve upward or however you want to put it. And then if you listen to the maybe mainstream financial media, Sometimes I've heard whispers of, oh, we got to look out for deflation because people aren't spending money. And it can't go both ways, right? We either have inflation or deflation or I guess supposed to Well, actually it can. It can. Actually, actually it can. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, well, first of all, these words all mean things and they mean things to different people. You know, I have three beautiful daughters, all now grown women, but when they were teenagers, which is the hardest part of being a father, I'll just tell you that right now. So I don't know where you're at in your family life, but if you've got young daughters, just get ready, right? It's fun. I mean, it's exciting. It's like a roller coaster ride, but it's, uh, it's intense. If you get through it, they'll end up becoming your best friends. And my three daughters are my best friends. But with that said, I used to tell them, you know, ladies, at some point, a young man is going to come up to you and he's going to say, I love you. And when he says that word love, it means something to him and it means something to you. But I'm here to tell you what you think it means, what he thinks it means. It's not the same thing. <laughs> okay. So, point. cause I was a young man once and I remember using those words and they didn't mean what the young ladies I was saying to them meant. Right. So words mean things. That's the point. And so when Peter says inflation, When people hear the word inflation, they think it means CPI, consumer price index. Now, if you go back and look at the index the way it was originally created, we do have inflation, but it has been changed just like they just changed the Dow Jones Industrial Edge, just like they changed the the S&P from time to time. They mix it up. Part of that is because they're not getting what they want. If you look at the uh, wizards of the economy, both in the banking system and on Wall Street, but especially the politicians and and the bankers, you know, the Federal Reserve, they manipulate outputs to try to fit a narrative. It's just like they say, well, you know, housing drives a strong economy. No, it doesn't. It reflects a strong economy. Nobody in the real world goes out and buys a house to get a job. They get a job <laughs> and buy a house. I mean, any, any, anybody on Main Street with two ounces of common sense understands that. But when you get a PhD in economics and you work in the Eccles building, you don't get that. And so you don't, you don't understand. So when Peter says inflation, inflation is when you print more money than the growth of goods and services. 
by definition, we have inflation right now because we've printed trillions of dollars and our economy is shrinking. Okay, so Peter is 100% right. Now, why isn't it showing up in CPI? Well, CPI, any cost of goods is, is based on a couple of factors. And so you really have to kind of strip out what, where prices come from. Inflation is more money chasing less goods. That's inflation. And so you get a bid. If you and I were in a, if there was, you know, 10 people in a, a desert somewhere and there was one water bottle and uh, it was a vending machine that took the highest bidder and each of us had a dollar in our pocket in pennies, then, you know, the first person would put in a penny hoping to get it, but the next person would come in and up the bid. And next thing you know, the person dying of thirst would put all 100 pennies in and that thing would sell for a dollar. And that would be the price based on supply and demand. But if I, I came out with a printing press and gave everybody uh, $100, then the same process would occur and that same water bottle would sell for $100. That's too much currency selling the same product in the same supply and demand environment. So the other component is supply and demand, right? If, if, if they were selling you know, hot coffee and it was 120 degrees outside, the bid would be a lot less. And so even though the capacity to pay more was there, people like, I don't want it, right? So if you print a bunch of money and put it in circulation and people don't want to spend it, it doesn't move. That's called velocity. And that happens with supply and demand. And sometimes you make the demand go by by edict. You may not sell. You may not go out and eat. You may not be in business, right? Okay, so that kills velocity. That's nothing to do with the volume of money. That has to do with the velocity of money, the supply and the demand. And of course, the other part of supply and demand is actual supply right? You, you've got housing on fire right now. Why? Because there's so little supply. Mm -hmm. People aren't listing. People aren't moving. That goes back to that velocity issue. I don't want to sell. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to stay put, right? So you've got, you know, you got that going on. The other thing is leverage. Now, when you can borrow money from the future and spend it in the present, you have more purchasing power. So if prices are created through supply, demand, and capacity to pay, capacity to pay can come by how much money is in the system. And the way the money gets into the system is through debt, right? If I can spend $300 a month more than you to buy a house in an interest rate where mortgage rates are 6%, a 30-year fixed, fully amortized loan, my $300 a month will allow me to bid $50,000 more for that house. That's the power. That's leverage. There's a reason. The reason college education is so expensive is because the government tried to make it affordable with financing. And what did it do? It went up. Who won? <laughs> the colleges. A student didn't win, right? Mm -hmm. You try to make housing affordable. You create Fannie and Freddie. You put subsidized financing in the world. What happened to the price of housing? Went up. They lower interest rate. What happens to housing? Goes up. That's leverage. Well, the same thing is true. If interest rates were to go up, if lending were to constrict, prices go down because you lose the ability. If you lose your credit, your life changes, right? You go from driving a used car or you go from driving a new car, BMW or some fancy car because you can afford a five or $600 a month payment. You don't have the 50,000 or the $75,000 to buy the car. You've got the 500 bucks a month. But if you can't qualify for the loan because you have bad credit, now you're driving a $5,000 used car because you had to pay cash. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. That's the way it works. And so it's very complex when you try to look at pricing as an indicator of what's going on, because, you know, you will have inflation in financial assets. Duh, you opened up with saying the S&P index is at all time high. Okay. Yeah, but we don't have any inflation. The heck we don't. We do. It's showing up in financialized assets. 
because they're the people who get access to the money first. It didn't show up in labor. It hasn't showed up in wages. That's because we exported all of our labor to deal with the last time the dollar collapsed in 1971. I mean, that's when we opened up relations with China. I mean, we were in Vietnam fighting a war against communism. <laughs> and the next thing you know, we're in bed with China and they're communists. Well, what happened? We needed cheap labor to suck up the fact that our dollar had collapsed and gold went from 35 to 850 in three years. And we're seeing some of that right now. So we don't look at the, you know, I study gold and silver because they're gauges of the dollar. And gold right now is telling you the dollar's weak. Mm -hmm. But if you're not used to looking at that gauge, if the only gauge you pay attention to is the S&P and the Dow Jones and the things that you're told, hey, pay no attention to this. Look over there. Look over there. If you're doing that, <laughs> then you're going to buy off on these narratives. That's why you have to have. So Kiyosaki says you have to have a financial education. And the problem is you can't get it watching financial TV because those people, they don't understand you. They're not about Main Street. The only reason they talked about Bitcoin was because they had to. And Bitcoin was a threat. So they put Bitcoin in the futures market so that they could crash the price the same way due to the price of gold, right? I told my, my, my wife uh, when she was with me, when they, I said, watch, if Bitcoin hit 20,000 and they announced that we're going to put it in the futures market. I said, well, that's the end of that. <laughs> and it was. They chopped it in half and it's been kind of stuck at about that ever since. Wow. So one of the things I wonder before we wrap up here, as I always think about what what's the U.S., what's our situation going to look like over the next 20 to 30 years? 20 years ago, we were just before 9-11, uh, just before, you know, it, the, the economy was where it was, and we're in a very different position today. And I just think, where are we going to be in 2040, 2050, particularly if we continue this very much accommodative monetary policy that we are in i mean is it a is it a optimistic picture or pessimistic or does it go back to what you said of both of those things exist at the same time and we need they to do they absolutely them. exist at the same time well I, I think number one is you have to recognize the system is flawed and anything that cannot go on won't right that's the old adage right anything that isn't you know, cannot continue, won't continue. So our system cannot continue in its current form. It's going to get reset. What does that look like? If you read Jim Rickards, he talks about, you know, the world reserve currency becoming an SDR. I've been concerned for a long time that China is playing a game. And I think that they're in a position to knock the dollar off. And for the last 10 years, they've been talking about doing it. Now, are people going to trust China? Probably not. I mean, you know, I, I don't really understand all the reasons why, but it seems like anytime anybody rises up and takes a shot at the dollar, they're criminal, you know, they're, they're uh, world's worst enemy number one, right? Saddam Hussein wanted to denominate oil in euros uh, and, and he's gone. Uh, Gaddafi wanted to create a gold-backed dinar. He's gone. Uh, Hugo Chavez wanted to repatriate his 120 or 150 tons of gold and he did it and then he's gone. <laughs> And, you know, I could go on and on. Now, am I saying that gold and oil and the dollar are the things that drive all geopolitics? No, but they sure as heck influence them. But the point is the United States has been enjoying exorbitant privilege of the world's reserve currency since 1944, 45 at Bretton Woods. They got it. We got it, the United States, because we had the biggest army, the biggest manufacturing base, the strongest balance sheet, all the gold. We basically won the war and could do whatever we wanted. 
we told people, hey, we're going to be the stabilizing force in the world. We'll set up all this NATO and all this other stuff. And uh, you guys trade in dollars. And if you ever want to get gold, just bring them into the gold window. A dollar is as good as gold. Nixon broke that, as some people may recall, in 1971. And then that's really, if you look at the chart, if you go to the Federal Reserve St. Louis website, St. Louis Fed website, and just punch in the value of the dollar and you look, you'll see after 1971, that's where we got, you know, everything that happened in the 70s with oil prices skyrocketing and the oil shortage, we were going to run out of fossil fuel by the year 2000. How'd that work out? You had oil prices go up and that's where we opened up trade relations with China. That's where the petrodollar was born. There was a lot of things that went on to save the dollar, culminating in interest rates by Paul Volcker being jacked up in the early 80s to over 20%. But we could afford that back then. Today, we can't. So there will be a reset. Peter Schiff is convinced that uh, it's going to be some form of gold, that the world is going to have to go back to gold standard. The behavior of the central banks says that's probably accurate only because the central banks are the ultimate insiders when it comes to currency. And in 2019, they bought a record amount of gold. The only time they'd ever bought that much gold before was in 1971 or two after Mm -hmm. Nixon defaulted. Right. So that's kind of central bank behavior like, hey, the world's reserve currency is in trouble. So, again, we've been talking about that for a long, long time because these are the things you have to begin to watch for. So to answer your question without going on to like a mini seminar, because I can do that, it's a fascinating topic to me. I think you need to you need to study and think about preparing for a, a dollar collapse or at least a severe weakening. So that means having some equity on your balance sheet, liquid that isn't denominated in in dollars and that could be easily converted into whatever currency. Some people think Bitcoin's the answer. Personally, I'm not a fan, but I know it's like a religion for some people. I like precious metals better. I understand that's also like a religion for some people, but Warren Buffett just flip-flopped on that. And that was big news if you didn't see it. And he didn't buy gold directly, but he bought gold miners. And I wrote a whole newsletter on that topic. I think people need to take a look at precious metals as an alternative. Uh, If they have equity in their real estate, I would go grab it because the market's going to take it probably. You might as well get it while you can. Cash is always a good thing to have. If prices go down because credit markets collapse and they could, then you're going to want to be liquid because you can go bargain shopping. Now, if you're worried about the payment, interest rates are almost zero, but just peel off a little bit of it and make a high yield investment, right? If I can borrow at four and get a yield at eight, I can take half my proceeds and invest it for the full payment and have the other half available to do whatever I want with. I don't need to worry about getting a yield. I can sit on it, wait for an opportunity. I can park some of it in gold and pivot. So I think you want to focus on liquidity, alternatives to the dollar, getting into debt carefully with the right real estate, taking advantage of you know the big depreciation schedules that we have to make those early ownership years a little bit easier lock in financing when you can. I would build a great tribe of people who are affluent. If you're not one of them, then you become the shopping guy, right? I mean, you know, wealthy people in COVID-19, they're not going to the grocery store. They're not putting their masks on. They're hiring people to do their shopping and bring their stuff to them. Like, that's what I do. I'm not saying I'm wealthy, but I'm saying that's what I do, right? I don't (laughs) want to go to the store, right? See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, The point is, is that people who are wealthy are going to see the opportunity in real estate and they're going to want what real estate can provide in an environment like we're in because it's real, it's tangible, it's main street. You don't have the counterparty risk that you have in banks and bonds 
the principal risk that you have in any debt instrument, especially bonds, as yields go up, if yields go up, bond prices go down. And so if you own bond portfolio and interest rates go up, boy, you take it hard on the principal side. It's like cap rates on apartment buildings. And I know you understand that. But, you know, be, be looking at all that. And that's why I'm a big fan of syndication. Because if you're a syndicator, then you say, okay, I'm willing to go out in the street and hustle. I'm willing to go put deals together. And if I have a network of wealthy people who have money, now I've got shopping, I've got purchasing power. You know, and if you're a tweener, you know, if you're like the millionaire next door, you know, you don't have 5 million to invest, but you know, you're accredited. Well, yeah, then I, I would definitely take a look at syndication as a way to invest. And I would start divesting out of Wall Street. You know, you can say, I'm going to hang on and I'll, I'll leave, you know, when they turn the lights off. But the problem is it's a freaking stampede when that happens. <laughs> and, you know, you got to be pretty darn fast. And most of the people who are in there see things way before you do. And you're not going to know till it swallows you. So it's a dangerous game. You know, if you've got profits, I think about taking some of them. That's me. I'm not telling anybody what to do. I'm not an investment advisor. Don't give tax or legal advice. I'm just a schmo with a microphone and a, and a lot of opinions. But, you know, I've seen a lot. Uh, I've experienced a lot, both good and bad. Had some wins, had some really bad losses. And, uh, you know, to me, that's the way I think people need to be approaching it. It all starts with putting good ideas in your head, right? Congratulations on listening to a show like this. Listen to more. Go to events when you can, get around smart people, start a study group, read books, take it upon yourself to become knowledgeable because the people who are out there trying to tell you what to do, most of them don't know what they're talking about. Wow. Love My it. opinion. Wow. Great points. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Russ, I've got three quick hitting questions. I ask every okay. guest in the show. Are you ready? Yep. First one, what's the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Oh, man, that's hard. Uh, I would have to say relationships. The best investment, you know, a great, great investment getting to know Robert Helms, you know, and he and I have taken and made great investments getting to know people like Robert Kiyosaki, Peter Schiff. So relationships, absolutely. Hands down. Got my copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad right here. Love it. We had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Oh, man. I think that, uh, I don't know, I could, I mean, we've had a few losers. Uh, you know, I think, I think the worst investment that I made was uh, I got involved in an apartment building and we, we ended up selling it to a group of investors and we decided to keep the largest building for our profit on the deal. And we turned over all of the management to this group of investors and they didn't know what they were doing. And once they got their hands on the controls, they didn't give them back and they didn't ask for help and they drove the thing into the ground. <laughs> and so it turned out to be a, a million dollar profit that turned into a complete and total loss and it didn't need to happen. And it goes back to, you know, relationships. Wow. Third question, my favorite one here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? I think that I'm, it's an ongoing process, but I would say uh, that you have to take 100% responsibility, extreme ownership. If you find yourself blaming the economy, and I've done that, or blaming your partner, and I've done that, blaming your spouse, and I've done that, uh, the person you need to have a conversation with is the man or woman in the mirror. And you have to take full responsibility for your education, for your understanding, 
and make that your top priority, just like the way you should be taking care of your physical health. If you're serious about being a healthy investor, take care of your education. Wow. And, 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 and take full responsibility. Well, Russell, thank you for joining us today and all of these lessons. And, you know, on a personal level, thank you for everything you've taught me at your events. My first Secrets of Successful Syndication I went to right at the beginning. I can't even remember the exact quote, but you said that as someone that identifies as an introvert at these events, you need to be an introvert. So in a certain sense, you need to pretend to be somebody you're not in order to be successful, in order to be that person that goes out there and builds those relationships. And that has really stuck with me over the last, I don't know how many years now, but um, wanted to thank you for that and, and all of the other lessons, but that one that was by far the most uh, impactful. So thank you for that very much. Well, we say all the time, you know, get out there because just one idea or one relationship uh, can, can, can be a game changer for you, at least take you to a new level. So well, good, thanks, glad that that was useful. Where can folks learn more about you if they want to follow up? Well, realestateguysradio.com. We're not hyper proud of our website, depending on when you see this. It's in the process of being revamped. We've got a great growing YouTube channel going, so you can check us out there uh, on YouTube. Uh, or you can just get on our newsletter list. We publish a weekly newsletter, and I wax on about things that I see going on in the world. And that's newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. Great. Great. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. Really love to spend some more time with you and get these lessons. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Very much appreciated. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks once again. Take care. Have a great rest of your day and a great week. We'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.